Hello everyone and welcome to the 39th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Matthias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 39th episode, I'm extremely happy to have Chris Stott from Lone Star with me. So, welcome, Chris. Well, thank you very much for having me, Matthias. I'm really looking forward to this. All right. So, for the people that doesn't really know you, Chris, could you just explain who you are and why you ended up in this industry? No, well, thank you. My, well, my name is Chris Stott. I'm the CEO and founder of Lone Star Data Holdings. We're working, working to put the first in a series of ever-increasingly capable data centers up on the lunar surface. And it was customers who brought me here. I spent most of my life in the space industry, and they came to us seeking a rather unique solution to some of their pain points at the moment. All right. That's really cool. How did you end up in the space industry from the beginning? Why? Oh, passion. Oh, Matthias, passion. I, I, there's, I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't fascinated about space. Uh, everything from rockets and satellites and astronauts and the space program and just coming through school and coming through university and working uh, yeah, worked in politics, both sides of the Atlantic, but always on a space policy side of things. And yeah, for always follow your passions. I've been working in the space industry now for about 30 years. Love wow. every moment. Oh, that's really cool. Where did, where did you start? Just out of curiosity. No, sure. Well, my first job uh, in the actual space industry itself was working with a company called McDonnell Douglas, an amazing company. We were, I was part of the Delta II launch vehicle program, very junior part. And we merged with Boeing when I was there. Uh, but I got to work on some incredible programs. So launch vehicles, rockets, and then um, moved out to Houston. Uh, my wife uh, worked for NASA for many years. And she got moved to Houston for her work. And then I joined Lockheed Martin Space Operations. So I went from launching satellites and spaceships and spacecraft into working with how to operate them in space. Uh, part of my portfolio when I was at Lockheed, uh, the CSOP program, love our acronyms. Consolidated Space Operations contract, right? Uh, looking at everything from the deep space network to the tracking data relay satellite system and ground networks of antennas all over the world. Wow, that's really, really cool. Okay, so you, you just mentioned that your current role is CEO of Lone Star. So what, what is Lone Star? What type of company is that? Yeah, so with Lone Star, we're, we're a sort of a hybrid mix of data and space. Hmm. Uh, a group of customers came to us and said, look, we have a problem. Uh, we're worried about the security of our data. We need it to be safe, secure, accessible, but also sovereign. It has to be held and, and backed up as a premium service under data sovereignty law. And they came to us because they knew we were in the space industry. They were worried about network intrusion on the ground. They were worried about climate change, uh, about the impact, the growing, uh, increasing impact of storms, freezes, uh, heat waves, mm -hmm. fires. And, you know, and also nation state hacking and random acts. And they just wanted a safe, secure place to store their data that was accessible, but was also key under the proper regulations as well. And so that's how Lone Star started. We, we looked at everything. We looked at data centers under the ocean. We looked in deserts, mm -hmm. jungles. We looked underneath mountains. We looked on top of mountains. And every time we did that, there were a couple of issues. One is the earth is a beautiful place. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same network everywhere. Yeah. So if you're worried about network intrusion, that was that was a, that was a, a factor. And then of course d- uh, data sovereignty, data localization, data residency laws. You know your data, you know your regulated data has to be held uh, under the laws of your country. You're responsible to your regulator. So how did we do that? And so we started looking at space. Um, we looked at low Earth orbit because we need global coverage, and we looked at the cost of putting up a constellation. Uh, something I've done a lot in my life. Uh, but with the constellation, you've got jamming issues, debris issues, you've got the cost of replenishment. And for us, you know, constellations in low Earth orbit are fantastic for latency. Uh, but latency isn't so much an issue for us because we're doing you know, secure storage. Mm-hmm. And so that was a bit tough for us. because you know, You're looking at something like Starlink, uh, that SpaceX are doing an amazing job with that. And you're looking at about $35 billion worth of investment, according to public sources there. If you're looking at uh, Project Kuiper from Amazon, public sources, uh, you're looking at $48 billion and constant replenishment of assets. And it's, it's, they're both incredible programs, as is OneWeb, which mm-hmm. is already up and running now, but has already been through one $8 billion uh, Chapter 11. So that low Earth orbit wasn't good for us and also wasn't, didn't meet our solution set. So we went higher. We looked at geostationary orbit, 36,000 kilometers up. And there you need three satellites to get global coverage. Okay, we could do that. But the life cycle cost, you're looking at about $500 million each on the life cycle for the size of satellite we would have needed. And we went, okay, as a startup company, that's maybe not the best thing for us. Mm-hmm. So we went back to the customers and said, look, we're going to give it one, one final shot. We have an idea. Bear with us. And we were off, and we went off and looked at Earth's largest satellite. You know that one that's so <laughs> large, all yep. of us can see it with the naked eye, and that's the Moon. Yep. And NASA and the European Space Agency and the Japanese and Canadians and others have an incredible set of programs called Artemis. Artemis is the sister of Apollo, uh, returning to the Moon. Mm. Obviously, the Chinese government is already on the Moon. They've been active there, one mission for sixteen hundred days now. 1,600 days uninterrupted activity on the South Lunar Pole. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, hats off to yeah. them. And so as part of Artemis, there's a bunch of precursor missions, missions that go ahead, just like there was with the mm-hmm. Apollo program. And that's called CLIPS, another acronym, uh, Commercial Lunar Payload Services, where NASA is a customer for uh, robotic spacecraft that land on the moon and take things to the moon for NASA and for other space agencies. And you pay by the kilogram. And oh my goodness, we found working with one, uh, we talked to one of them, they're all really good. Mm-hmm. Um, the one we picked to start with is Intuitive Machines out of Houston, Texas. Great team of people, really good on mission operations. Uh, their first two missions are scheduled for this year. Uh, they're working with SpaceX on the launch. All the big pluses for us all around, great teams of people. I mean, literal rocket science. Mm-hmm. But we found out that we could put something on the surface of the moon that met our data set. Well, our, our, our customer set, right, met our requirements counterintuitively cheaper than putting one in low Earth orbit. And so we're like, wow. So we can do our testing this year and we can grow and scale our activities 400,000 kilometers away from the planet using free energy, free cooling. And this is not to replace data centers on the ground. This is to back up secure premium data on the moon. All right. And yeah, tons of advantages for us. I know, right? Sounds counterintuitive, right? You're crazy. You're sending things to the moon. I'm like, you know, I know it sounds crazy. And yet, speaking with our customers, and both of our first two missions are sold out, which is great. I thank you, customers, for their faith. And 
We're not working with any new technology. And all we're really doing is just leveraging Earth's largest satellite as an incredibly secure, stable platform to work from. And rather than us orbit the Earth in a satellite, every 24 hours a day, Earth spins and rotates underneath us on the moon. And the moon, for those who don't know listening, and it's fascinating, I, I love all of this, the moon doesn't spin. The Earth spins, the moon doesn't. It's that side of the moon that's always facing the Earth. It's called near, near, the near-Earth side. Yep. So we can put something up there, and it's constantly facing the ground. So we have line-of-sight communications uh, to the planet 24 hours a day. Wow. So, so Matthias, what we look at today is like science fiction. Yep. Well, it's science fiction until it isn't. Yeah. It's, you know, for us, we see the future. We, we've got uh, our engineering teams, our payload has been built for the first ever the first ever data center off planet. It's built, it's sitting in a factory in Northern California at a company called Skycorp, who've done a tremendous job for us. And it's ready to go past thermal vibration, vacuum, electromagnetic interference, EMI testing, just waiting to go, you know, casually, just waiting to go, right? Just ready to get on yeah, the no, rocket and go to the moon. Yeah, and this is super cool, really. I, I thought this was more of a dream when I read about it, but I kind of understand that this is going to happen, if not this year, next year at least. Oh, this year? Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. Uh, no, absolutely. The first two missions are planned for this year. Yeah. Our first mission is a concept of operations test where we're transmitting uh, a, a document on one of the, the new lunar landers, uh, transmitting it to the moon for storage, pulling back from that lander a, a second document for you know to retrieve a document from the moon, You know, testing out our communications links, making sure mm -hmm. that it all works. And then the second mission, America's second return to the moon this year, that's when the payload goes. All right. That's uh, the first. What, it's a kilogram, what type, what eight terabytes. Okay, eight terabytes. Couple, uh, an FPGA chip. Yeah. Work really well. All right. That's fantastic. Linux on uh, the moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really. And I, and I guess, you know, if I think about the data we have in our network, I can really feel that about 70% of the data is very unsensitive to latency. So I think, you know, there's a ton of data that you can store on the moon. So that's pretty cool. Well, there you go. Thank you. I'm going to thank you. I mean, that's, when I look at the moon, I see a huge iPhone. Yep. Or Android phone, you know, for those who love Android. Right. But what I see is a huge secure place for us to store data mm -hmm. and retrieve it and also use it in the lunar cloud for people who are who are exploring and going to live on the moon, this new this new return to the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll need a cloud and edge processing. So we're testing that as well on these missions. Mm -hmm. But the great thing is, well, great thing. Maybe that's the wrong phrase to use. Because here we are as a species. Every day, was it 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are created every day mm -hmm. by the human race. That's 1,000 petabytes a day. Wow. So that's 365,000 petabytes a year. Mm -hmm. And it's just doubling every, every two years. And it's incredibly important to us. The two most important things I would suggest in our world today are us, people, right? Us, yep, yep. Our, ourselves and our families and our friends and our societies. And I would say a close second is the data that we create, because it's that data that drives our technological civilization. Yep. And it's that technological civilization that allows us to feed and clothe and educate and medicate ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if we were to lose that, it's not good. I often talk with people about um, a terrible event, terrible event. Mm -hmm something so bad that we still talk about it over 2,000 years later. And that's the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Yep. You know, in uh, Roman Civil War, Julius Caesar was in, was in town and things didn't go well. And the library was burned. We still talk about that 
2,000 years later, that data loss, mm. so profound. Yeah, uh, you're now, right. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's a yeah. horrible thing to think about. Yeah. But what would happen if that happened today? Yeah. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. How, mu- how much data do you think could be stored on the moon? Uh, oh, eventually? I, I would honestly, our eventual goals mm. uh, is everything. Wow. Because the moon has these incredible series. Of, I mean, it's an incredibly stable platform in its own right. Mm. So um, by putting infrastructure on its surface, which we're doing to explore it anyway, mm-hmm. uh, but everything from antennas to solar farms for solar power, because I think it's incredibly green. Yeah, We're using solar energy up there, right? This is ESG in its best. Mm. And we're using natural cooling. Mm. It gets very cold up yeah, there. Yeah, of course. Um, eventually... Depending on the, well, I mean, you know, all these depends on, you know, what kind of storage device medium, because we're using SSDs, but as we go forward, there's talks of holographic DNA and all sorts of things. Eventually, the, the moon should be and must be the backup for the entire planet, especially as we are going through climate change. Mm-hmm. And climate change will get worse before it gets better, because we will fix climate change. Yeah. Why? Because we have no other choice. You're right. right? Yeah, and you're so right. some of the world's, Finest minds are working on that at the moment, coming out of the space program and biotech and more. Mm. And again, that technological civilization that feeds us, puts, you know, lets the light bulb switch on, uh, has also given us over 250 million scientists mm. around the world doing everything. It's incredible, right? And they rely on data. They're using Moore's Law, faster computers, as Dr. Peter Diamanda says, making faster computers. Was it Moore's Laws in biotech is going seven times Moore's Law in AI? Well, not real AI, as as you and the listeners know, mm. it's uh, it's 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 silicon ones and zeros and machine learning, and mm. most of it's rules based. But all of that data, all of those tools that we, as evolved tool using apes, are allowing ourselves to have, right? Mm. It's incredible, mm. and so we'll need a place to store and compute while we're fixing climate change. Mm. Uh, and a quick quick example, like last summer. When the water ran dry in the Rhine in Germany, mm. and some mm. of those data centers shut down because there was no water to cool them, or in London when it got over forty degrees Celsius, and two big data centers for Oracle and Google had to shut down because their batteries melted. Wow! So climate change is real and it's happening, mm. and it will continue to impact the infrastructure we need to combat climate change and to solve it. So that's where the moon comes in. Right, and then. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, it I'm really sounds powers. fantastic. I, I, I really love the idea. And uh, yeah, perfect. Oh. Well, uh, all we're doing is leveraging 60 years of investment in space. Mm-hmm. So, do you ever see that movie Armageddon? Yep. Great fun, right? I love it, right? But, but last year, the DART mission, NASA knocked an asteroid off course without Bruce Willis. <laughs> Incredible, right? Yeah. And so, but it gives you an idea of what we're doing as tool evolved apes, right? Evolved, yeah. you're all using apes. It's incredible. But in that movie, there's a moment when the character played by Billy Bob Thornton, who's the lead flight director there at the, at the NASA center, says, Ladies and gentlemen, let's show them why, that this is why they have a space program. And I would suggest going forward, this is why we have a space program. Our most valuable asset outside of ourselves can now be protected safely and securely outside our biosphere. Mm. And that's 60 years of investment. People say, why do we have a space program? Oh, my gosh, we can give you a list of things. Right? Mm. We're talking through a satellite right now. Yep. But that's why. Oh, my gosh, no more libraries of Alexandria. That's just one thing why. I mean, beyond fusion, beyond all the great advances that are happening as we speak, that's why. Because 
there's a great um oh gosh which is his his name is henry uh vermilio i think mm-hmm. i've got his last name wrong great 20th century philosopher that said look when you invent the ship you invent the shipwreck mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. any kind of technology has a dual use and this concept of um when you create data uh, you create data loss and the more valuable data becomes the more the greater it's worth the more it's worth stealing mm-hmm. and this is what we're finding too so the, this asset uh I was talking to a colleague last week and they said oh da- you know the, the quote you often hear data is the new oil yep and he said oh what you guys are doing isn't offshore oil it's offshore data and i'm like yeah yeah you're right that's what we're doing we're taking all of earth's data somewhere safe right mm-hmm. and storing it mm-hmm. and so that's the goal that's the hope and that's what the missions are planned and the first one is well the first first one is loaded and ready to go with intuitive machines uh, on their lander their nova sea lander which is in houston texas getting ready to ship down to cape canaveral mm-hmm. and our payload for the second mission is built finished tested sitting in the in california at the factory getting ready for shipping down to integration at intuitive machines for their second mission wow again out of cape canaveral yeah Oh, really, really hey, cool. Yeah. It's the 21st century, Matthias. You know, we, have to do, we haven't yeah. got flying cars yet. At least we can do is put data centers <laughs> yeah. on the moon. Oh, that's perfect. That's really, really cool. Uh, another thing I want to talk to you about is when, when I read about you and I, I previously talked to you, uh, you were part of the documentary, The University. Uh, yes. What is that about, you know, and, and why is that so famous? No, no, well, thank you. No, no, we were very happy. I mean, great director, uh, Matt Rutherford, mm-hmm. fantastic production team of John Morris and... Uh, uh michael potter mm-hmm. uh, myself and uh michael hosel and look we were very fortunate to be at the founding of singularity university uh dr peter diamandis and others helped found the international space university but there were no cameras there singularity was founded in at nasa ames and mountain view california with the help of google and others mm-hmm. but this idea that we needed to take a look at these new technologies and their impact on humanity mm-hmm. with a bit of forecasting And Dr. Ray Kurzweil, uh, who was with Google at the time and doing the AI, um, said, okay, we're looking at something called the singularity. When all of these technologies come together, when biotech, nanotech, material science, computing, space, what what is happening in all these things? Because Moore's law that you know every 18 months, uh, microchips get twice as good and yeah. half as cheap. The idea that Moore's law is not just impacting computers, but it's impacting the people who use them and the technology that drive this. So we tried to capture that. We captured the founding of a new university on camera. We looked at several of the students and the teams that they were putting together. They were given a challenge to positively impact the lives of a billion people in less than a decade. That was the challenge for the university. And the and the students were said, okay, what are you going to do? What are your team projects? Every single team came back and said they were going to form a startup company. Blew our minds. No one said, oh, I'm going to go join the United Nations or I'm going to go join my government and do these things. It's like, whoa, whoa. And it was fascinating for us. We said, you want to change the world and you think changing the world is done through entrepreneurship? And they said, yes. And Peter Diamandis himself says, humanity's greatest problems are also its greatest opportunities. Not to profit on a problem, but to solve them. Solve them using private capital. Solve them using exponential technologies. Solve them using capital that doesn't take away taxpayers' money from schools or education or defense. And solve them in a way that actually benefits people, creates jobs, creates wealth. And that 
was what the university is about. We followed these various teams going through. All of them have done amazing things. Everything from rideshare to uh, recycling to putting 3D printers in space. All of it happened. All of it works. And all of those teams have gone off to do amazing things. Over, I think, three or four billion dollars of investment into their projects. Real measurable change and impact. Wow. But that's why. And we've got a bunch of a, a, a bunch of people who are teaching at the university, um, other experts, and got them on camera. And so what do you think is going to happen in the future? That was it. And it was 10 years ago. And I would, if you got it, look, I don't, we, yeah, it's on Amazon Prime at the moment and a few others. We won a bunch of uh, film festivals and awards. It was great. But the real thing about that is the message. Go watch it. It was done 10 years ago. And just see, because it's very relevant to today for what's happening in AI. And Michael Potter, uh, Michael was co-chairing the business school that, that first year when we had the cameras there. He's one of the producers. And uh, well, actually the lead producer almost very much. Uh, Michael has a great quote. And it's something that resonates today is that government is linear. Change is exponential. And when you talk to him and he talks about this, and Michael's very, very prophetic. He goes, look, by the time government and its legislative cycle of, you know, in the United States here every two years in the Congress, by the time you've identified a problem and are starting to write laws to address it and regulate it, that's fine in the 1940s. But in the 2020s, the 2030s, change is happening so fast because of these new technologies. Change is exponential. You, you, you can't keep up with it from a government point of view. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, I remember the, remember the famous uh, U.S. congressional hearings on social media. And you had the one, one senator ask Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, how do you make money? And everyone on that looking confused, like, uh, we sell advertising? Why? How do you think we make money? And it was like, wow. And that's the thing. If you think your grandparents can't program a VCR or can't use ChatGPT, oh my gosh, this is just the beginning. We're in the middle of a digital renaissance. And this is the beginning of it. There is a tsunami of digital change headed our way mm -hmm. and uh, being driven by these exponential technologies. And if you're aware of that, you can at least brace yourself, get on the surfboard and paddle out ahead of it in the hope of catching the wave. If you're not, the world becomes a very frightening, scary and confusing place. Wow. Ask any travel agent, yeah. right? No, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm fascinated. Thanks everyone for listening. In the next episode, we will continue to talk to Chris Stott, so stay tuned until next time. Please also remember the Twitter handle ConnectivityPod for updates.